Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Telly for History 302. Uh, today we're going to be talking about pro wrestling and gangster rap. If you go to if you go to Moodle and get the PowerPoint, you'll see it says gangster rap and pro wrestling, they have more overlap than you think. Now, theoretically, these are two very different forms of entertainment, but they're both highly invested in the persona of the performer and also have a high degree of masculinity ingrained in them. And there also are a few times wherever they do overlap. So just get on Moodle, you'll see right there, you'll get the PowerPoint, go over one more. You'll see Schooly D. Now, Schooly D is theoretically the first person to really get involved in gangster rap. Um, uh, the song Parkside Killers uh, it comes out in 1985. Uh, Schooly D is, is hailed as the, the first gangster rapper. Uh, early hip-hop is mainly about partying and has some elements of social commentary. Uh, mainly about the ghetto, which was seen as a place of dysfunction and not something to be proud of. Uh, early rap showed rappers as recipients of drugs and violence and not necessarily the perpetrators. Now, Schooly D, he's from Philadelphia. Uh, it is close to New York geographically, but definitely has its own hip-hop vibe. And I, I should mention very briefly that there are many regional variants on hip-hop, which arose in various metropolitan areas. You have, like, D.C. go-go music. You have New Orleans bounce music, uh, Miami club music. These are variations of hip-hop which exist in various places. And gangster rap starts a little bit like this. Uh, Parkside Killers PSK comes out in 1985. Uh, it does mention drug dealing and violence a little bit in this. Uh, I can't iterate this enough. This is not a very big record. This is not a very large record, not a very uh, well-known record. Uh, but a guy by the name of Ice-T heard it. If you go over, Ice-T. Uh, Ice-T is the first really big name in gangster rap. Uh, he's born in New York as Tracy Morrow. His parents died when he's fairly young, and he moves to Los Angeles to be with his aunt. In Los Angeles, this is about the mid-70s of this time period, he's exposed to a lot of gang culture and crip rhyming. Uh, crip rhyming is different than rap rhyming, much more in line with things like the dozens or uh, pimp narratives, which we talked about last week when we talked about early hip-hop. Uh, crip rhyming is its, own, is its own thing. However, Morrow um, you know, basically decides to join the army, does a stint there. And then he moves back to Los Angeles in the early 1980s and, and really kind of gets involved in the rap world. After he gets his discharge, he moves to Los Angeles, early 80s, tries to get into DJing and party promotion. And then in time, he starts rapping himself and decides to talk about gangster life, kind of akin to the pimp narratives, and also his high school days. Um, Ice-T is very vaguely involved in real-life gangbanging, uh, nothing more than a few robberies, no real, like, long rap sheet. Uh, mainly, he does try to keep his nose clean. In 1986, uh, influenced by PSK, by Schooly D, he releases Six in the Morning, which is hailed as like the first real gangster rap song. You'll see on YouTube, you can listen to Six in the Morning. But the real question is, why does all this happen in Los Angeles? What is so special about Los Angeles that, uh, that makes it really a hotbed of gangster rap? And a few things do happen in Los Angeles history to really make it ground zero for gangster rap, and we have to go back in history a little bit. So if you go over, you'll see why Los Angeles. You'll see a picture of the Santa Monica Pier. This is like in the 50s. Um, prior to World War II, Los Angeles did not have a very large African-American population. Um, actually, it was not the largest city in California. Um, it was a large city in California, but uh, a place like San Francisco was considerably larger. Uh, Los Angeles gets a lot bigger thanks to wartime manufacturing. Uh, there's a lot of Navy shipyards uh, in Los Angeles, brings in a lot of influx of people, a lot of African-Americans who are able to work in these um, factories thanks to the federal government mandating that you could not discriminate when it came to um, military wartime manufacturing. So Los Angeles does not have Jim Crow segregation. Like Jim Crow style, when I say Jim Crow, we generally talking about like legalized segregation put into law. But it does have an informal set of segregation in terms of neighborhoods and cities. Uh, something I really do need to mention is that Los Angeles is not one big city. There, there is the city of Los Angeles, of course, but the major metro area is made up of a ton of little cities. Uh, cities like, uh, like Santa Monica or or Burbank, or um, Malibu, or, you know, all these little cities make up this area that's known as Los Angeles. But there's a lot of small areas. 
And basically, there's an informal set of segregation based upon these areas and neighborhoods in particular. Uh, There is no Jim Crow mandating, like, you know, African-Americans have to live there by force of law. It's not in the law system, but it's very informal. Um, In history, we call this de facto segregation. Something like Jim Crow is called de jure segregation by law, but then you have de facto segregation by practice. And Los Angeles is very, very heavy on de facto segregation. So when African-Americans come to Los Angeles, they settle in places like Watts. Watts is its own separate city. It's where you have the Watts riots in the 60s. And also um, South Central Los Angeles. Uh, these are not like beach places. Uh, very working class places. Not close to the beach. Kind of working class communities. It starts out pretty okay. You know, everybody's got jobs. It's, it's the war. People are coming in. They have jobs. Everybody's kind of working in these kind of working class areas. And with this new influx of individuals, particularly African-American individuals, if you go over one more slide, you'll see Willie Parker, or William Parker. He's the police chief of Los Angeles. He's a very controversial figure in Los Angeles because in 1950, he brings in, he's like, basically, we have all these African-Americans, we have black people living in Los Angeles. I don't know what to do with black people. I don't know how to police them. Uh, That's definitely his own racism coming out, I should say. And he says, basically, I need to bring in people who know how to deal with black people, who've worked with black people before, a.k.a. Southerners, a.k.a. like Southern police officers. He really tries to style the Los Angeles Police Department akin to a very Southern police department. This is insanely controversial. Like a lot of his lieutenants or stuff are people that he like brings in, you know, he pays the big bucks to bring in people from places in the South to serve as officers and stuff in the Los Angeles Police Department. Now, granted, he does desegregate the police department in 1962, but the LAPD was seen as especially harsh towards black folks through the 60s. I mean, for instance, the Watts riots happens because of uh, police harassing a drunk motorist, which is kind of a reoccurring trend here and going here. For instance, if you look at the Watts riots in 1965, that is one of those things that uh, demonstrates how, you know, the racial dynamic in Los Angeles isn't necessarily the greatest. Go over more slides, you'll see another picture of the Watts riots. But the economy is still good in the 60s. In general, the economy is still good. There's still manufacturing jobs to be had. That falls apart in the 1970s, like hard. Uh, there's a massive downturn in manufacturing. Uh, make a very long story short, basically more manufacturing uh, goes overseas as a way to help prevent the spread of communism. Uh, talk to me in my Cold War class or something, and we can get into deep into that. Uh, this results in the good jobs that don't require education going away. Uh, basically, the jobs that don't require like special training or you know special like um, skills. Basically, you're, a lot of manufacturing jobs you learn at the job, on the job. Uh, this makes the working class areas of Los Angeles turn underclass. Uh, basically, it's like people who who never have a job, not people who, you know, are working a lower end or um, working class job. Particularly places like Watts and South Central Los Angeles, because you know, even though theoretically there was no Jim Crow style segregation, uh, when factories do leave, African Americans were much more likely to get their jobs cut than anybody else. Also, in 1978, a new police chief comes in. If you go over one more, you'll see Daryl Gates, another very controversial figure. Uh, He becomes the police chief. Um, Gates is the father of the SWAT team. Uh, Basically, the idea that the criminals are just so powerful, we need to use the most weapons we have against them. This idea of, like, militarized policing. Uh, Like Willie Parker, he does not think too much of community policing. He feels like it's a waste of resources. There's no reason to do this. You know, have this sort of... uh, Why should we be spending so much money, like, you know, walking the streets, getting to the communities? There are a bunch of criminals. We need to treat them like, you know, enemy combatants. And because of the loss of job prospects and this kind of hostility towards people living in these areas, a lot of black youths look toward gangs. But unlike the New York gangs, New York gangs we talked about with early rap music, they were more petty. Uh, these new ones become quite violent. Uh, they're known for being quite violent. Uh, for instance, you go over one slide, you will see the first Crips. The first Crips were the first like Los Angeles gang in this time period. The second one is the Bloods. The Bloods actually form in opposition to the Crips. 
This also co-lines with the spread of crack. Uh, crack is a cheaper form of cocaine that is way more potent. Way more potent. Um, it's not great health-wise for you. It's basically cocaine mixed with other stuff. Not good. Don't, don't take crack. I, I don't think I should have to tell you that. Crack's bad. But pretty much it's a perfect storm. You have an economic downturn, an overly zealous police chief, and new forms of drugs which makes making selling drugs even easier and more lucrative. And so it's really not too surprising that gangster rap comes from this brew. So if though Ice-T was a warning shot, NWA, which stands for Ask for Your Parents, I'm not going to tell you what that means, but you know what it means, uh, blows it open with 1988 Straight Outta Compton. If you look at, uh, if you look there, you can listen to the Straight Outta Compton music video right there. Uh, it is like anything heard ever before, like ever. It's much grittier, uh, much more, less humorous, less playful, way more direct, uh, way more overt in its talk of violence. Now, this is something I talk about extensively in my hip-hop class. This is not my hip-hop class. It's my pop culture class. So I know I'm not, I'm kind of, you know, breezing through this. That's okay, because I want to get to other stuff. But NWU is made up primarily of Eazy-E. Uh, if you look at the picture, Eazy-E is the one in the center. He's like the, the main founder, uh, kind of the mind behind it. You have Dr. Dre. Uh, Dr. Dre is right there, uh, top left. Uh, he is like the, the, the beats guy. He makes very different records than what's going on, on the East Coast. And Ice Cube, Ice Cube, bottom left. Uh, he's the lyricist and the main rapper. Uh, the album also includes uh, F the Police, which aims directly grievances against uh, Gates' police methods. Uh, but ironically, as soon as they get big, they fall apart. Ice Cube leaves in 1989. Uh, Dr. Dre leaves in like the early 90s. Uh, they actually start beefing with each other. But NWA was seen as prophetic, particularly after the Rodney King riots happened in 1992. Which shows that the uh, the racial issues in Los Angeles are pretty bad. Uh, Rodney King, the facts were as follows. He was a drunk driver. Basically, he gave police a high-speed chase. Gave him a high-speed chase. That is not really controversial. That's not really under um, any sort of you know controversy. What is controversial is after about this hour-long chase, whenever the police pull him over, uh, they start beating him with billy clubs. There's about four or five police officers who beat him up. Uh, this would not be an issue, except it was caught on camera. He lived, but he was, like, really beaten up after this. Um, the cops were charged with police brutality. That is something that had been accused of a lot of Los Angeles Police Department uh, police officers since the time of Willie Parker and Daryl Gates. Uh, and basically, it's like, this is, is demonstrating that they are, you know, violent against African Americans. They are, they are overly mean, overly wrong for doing this. So they go on trial for police brutality. Uh, make a very long story short, uh, the police are acquitted. They are not acquitted on any charges. They said basically the police are innocent. It was in their um, in their purview to do that. Uh, basically, a series of riots happens all around Los Angeles. There are all sorts of riots all around Los Angeles. If you go over one side, you'll see pictures of the L.A. riots, which are still the most violent and destructive um, riots in U.S. history. Because of the L.A. riots... NWA seems prophetic. You know, they're like, wow, if you look at something like Straight Outta Compton or F the Police, it's saying, wow, there are some racial issues going on in Los Angeles. Now, another rap group I got to talk about really quick is basically what happens to Dr. Dre afterwards. Uh, after Dr. Dre leaves NWA, he joins Death Row Records in 1992. Uh, its first release was called The Chronic, which is an album I know of. Also introduced the world to Snoop Dogg. Now, Death Row was manned by the scariest man alive. That'd be one Suge Knight seen there on the left. Suge Knight is terrifying. His real name is Marion. His mama called him Suge because he thought he was sweet as sugar, like sugar bear. Uh, Suge Knight was a former college football player. He played at UNLV, University of Los Angeles. Sorry, uh, Las Vegas. No, at UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, not Los Angeles. Uh, he plays a little while in the NFL. He has like a knee injury, so he, he can't really play in the NFL too long term. Uh, gets involved in the bodyguarding fairly early. And basically, he gets this one piece of advice. He's like, hey, you know, if you ever want to get into music, um, you know, make sure you own your own masters. And basically, Suge Knight takes this one piece of good advice and runs him to the ground. Um, he is large. He um, He's still large. He's still alive. Um, he's probably the only person who terrifies me legitimately. Of anybody I study, um, Suge Knight is like the one person who is uh, terrifying. Um, 
he's six three, like three hundred and something pounds. Clearly affiliated with the Bloods. Uh, he wears red all the time, and also not shy about using violence. Uh, there is an apocryphal story that uh, Vanilla Ice owed somebody, uh, basically owed royalties off of Ice Ice Baby to an artist uh, who was signed with Suge Knight for management. And basically, to get the royalties, um, Suge Knight took Vanilla Ice, held him by his ankles overneath like an eighth floor balcony, and like shook him until he agreed to sign over the royalty rights. Now, Death Row was hailed as real. All right, they were hailed as real. By the way, Suge is like twenty-seven. Whenever this is going on, so he's young. They're all young. Uh, they're selling records like crazy. Snoop Dogg comes out with Doggy Style, which is another big record. Um, what is interesting is you go one more slide is what happens with Tupac Shakur. Um, basically Tupac is a East coast rapper, not really known as a West, uh, well, he has some West coast affiliation, uh, really mainly known as a, like a more introspective guy, really interesting cat. Um, listen to my hip hop class about Tupac for one day. Like I said, I'm kind of doing really quick through this. Basically hip hop, uh, hip hop, Tupac was in jail on sexual assault. Uh, you know, and, he, and basically, Suge Knight's like, hey, I'll pay your bail if you do three albums with me and sign with Death Row. And Shakur does it and does crazy well in 1995. All sorts of music comes out. Uh, in 1996, however, the next year, and by the way, you go over one more slide, you'll see Tupac and Suge. It's terrifying. And if you go over one more, you'll say, don't do it, Tupac, because he's riding in a car with Suge Knight. Not even an hour after this was, um, this photo was taken, Suge Knight no, it was not killed, but Tupac was cool, killed. Shakur, Tupac Shakur was killed as part of the whole East Coast, West Coast feud. Uh, Dr. Dre leaves to perform Aftermath Records. Um, Suge Knight actually ends up going into jail. He got out of jail, and then he's back in jail because recently he ran over a guy, like, on camera, like a jack-in-the-box. Like, he was at a jack-in-the-box, just, like, you know, getting some food. And then this guy, like, came in and yelled at him, and then, uh, then uh, Suge Knight just ran over him. Like... Seriously, Suge Knight is the only person that, like, truly terrifies me of anybody I've researched. Like, I've talked to some of the other guys. They're pretty cool, but Suge Knight, I, I won't talk to him. He's terrifying. But then you're left with poor Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg is like, look, I'm stuck with this record label. You know, it's one of its top artists just got killed in this whole East Coast, West Coast feud. Um, you know, the, the, the record label head is in jail. And basically, Snoop gets bought out by a weird, surprising upstart uh, who's local. If you go over one more, you will see Master P and No Limit Records. Uh, no Limit isn't really gangster per se. Uh, Master P is very keen on using this kind of like persona, but Master P is like all about making business ventures. Um, if you ever want to meet a more like blatant capitalist than Master P, I've yet to meet him. Uh, Master P, uh, Percy Miller, he's from New Orleans. Uh, he's always very interested in making movies. Um, he actually, if you go over one more, he, you'll see that he was in the NBA for a while. He actually made the practice squad for a couple of NBA teams. Legitimately good basketball player. Like, legitimately good basketball player. And weirdly enough, um, he also gets involved in the pro wrestling. This is one where we have one of these overlaps. Oh, if you go over one more slide, you will see one of my favorite things of all time. Uh, the Master P doll. I, I actually had one of these whenever I was younger. Basically, it was like a, it was like an old school GI Joe. And if you pulled the string, he said, "Uh." It was like you pull the string, it goes, "Uh, na 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 na." Yeah, good old, good old Master P. Now, what is interesting is that while he's doing all this in late 1999 and 2000, he gets involved in pro wrestling. He gets involved in pro wrestling when he's making two hundred thousand dollars in appearance with WCW. Uh, if you go on YouTube, that clip right there, it should be a clip. You will see. Um, I, I apologize that the video quality is is not great. Um, it's the 90s. It was a weird YouTube clip. Uh, basically, Master P appearing on WCW Nitro and basically getting booed because it's actually kind of ironic. Um, if you have one slide, he was supposed to be the good guy wrestler. Uh, we're talking about that in just a second. Uh, he was supposed to be the good guy wrestler. The bad guy wrestlers, if you go over one more, were the West Texas Rednecks who made one of the most catchy, horrible songs of all time. Um, if you do nothing else this lecture, if you don't watch any other YouTube clips, you must watch this one because it is amazing. You will see performed uh, by Kurt Henning and the West Texas Rednecks. Um, the, the, the amazing Rap Is Crap song, which is hilarious. Um, the No Limit Soldiers are supposed to be the good guys. They're supposed to go up against the West Texas Rednecks, who are... Um, 
supposed to be the bad guy wrestlers. We'll talk about the terms in a second. Um, Rap is Crap comes on. It is, it is probably the most amazingly bad song you've ever heard in your life. Uh, and actually, kind of a reversal happened. Uh, basically, Master P and his ilk uh, got booed, and then the West Texas Rednecks got, uh, got highly, highly cheered. So, go figure on that one. So now we actually get into professional wrestling itself. Uh, we're kind of going to take the shift here. And I will admit, this is going to be a very uh, brief history. Um, very, you know, I'm, I'm definitely skimming over some stuff to get to the particulars of the 90s where we talk about the overlap of the gangster rap. But uh, professional wrestling has been around America for forever. Like, longer than you might think. It started out as a carnival sideshow attraction. Think of things like P.T. Barnum. Uh, P.T. Barnum was one of the first things we talked about in this class. Uh, that P.T. Barnum style of, like, old strongmen, uh, it was semi-legit. Um, early wrestling was semi-legit. Think of strongmen, you know, can he defeat the strongman type of thing. Uh, mainly linked to state fairs and the like. Uh, state fairs, you know, traveling sideshows. You know, it, it, was, it was wrestling. It was like, how strong can you be? It was legit. As legit as a sideshow attraction can be. Yes, there's some humbug as part of it, but generally the outcomes were not predetermined. Until you get into the 1930s, which is when personas kind of come about, where it's like they start having more of a character. One of the uh, main things we talked about in this class was kind of the switch from character to personality. That's keenly shown in professional wrestling. Like, before the 1920s and 30s, you know, the, the, the character of a professional wrestler was like, you know, are they just a good wrestler? Can they, like, physically, are they physically strong? After the 30s, you get into the personality, like, what is their character? Flashier moves also come into vogue. You know, flashier moves, things that are just a bit more out there. In addition, you start having the rigging of matches. Um, it's not a secret in professional wrestling, but um, early wrestling, I guess that was legit. Uh, most wrestling matches uh, nowadays, professional wrestling, uh, the, the matches, are, the outcomes are determined. Uh, before this, there are fairly legit sporting exhibitions, and I really cannot iterate the carny roots enough. Uh, just like P.T. Barnum, it's all about getting money from the audience. It's all about, it doesn't matter if they believe it's you know, a real mermaid or not a real mermaid, as long as they have a good time. Same thing with professional wrestling. It's all about finding that balance between you know, what is real and what is not real. Now, uh, I would like you to know a couple of terms. I would like you to know a couple of terms, a couple of basic wrestling terms. Um, the, the most important one, and I think this is a concept you just really need to know to understand the United States of America and pop culture, is kayfabe. Uh, kayfabe right there. Uh, kayfabe is the reality of the wrestling ring. That's, that's the only way I can describe it. Basically, if something happens in kayfabe, it's, it's not reality, but it's the reality of the ring. You know, it's the idea that something like, a, I don't know, an elbow drop could, like, really paralyze a man. It really can't. But it's the idea that, like, you know, within the main, you know, it's not really an undertaker fighting a killer clown or something. But in kayfabe it is. Um, the idea of, like, kayfabe relationships or kayfabe brother. Like, it's the idea that it's a reality within the ring. I know that that sounds like a, a, a uh, you know, a, it's, a, it's a weird concept. Uh, we're we're, we're going to talk about this more in class. But I just want you to know, like, the reality of the wrestling ring in kayfabe is just a very important concept to know, and I, I think it overlaps with a lot of these. I, I see a lot of con of kayfabe in, like, Gangster Rap. I think uh, P.T. Barnum is steeped in kayfabe. Uh, same with somebody like Buffalo Bill. Another term I like you to know is face. Uh, face is the good guy wrestler. A, a face is a good guy wrestler, uh, also known as a baby face, or just a face for short. Basically, that's your good guy wrestler, that's your clean wrestler, that's the one you want to, to win, as opposed to the heel. Uh, a heel wrestler is a bad wrestler. It's the bad guy wrestler. So, for instance, when we're talking about the Master P and the West Texas Rednecks, Master P was supposed to be a face, and the West Texas Rednecks were supposed to be heels. You know, basically, Master P was a popular guy. They were paying him $200,000 a pop to appear on WCW, so he should get some, you know, get some good cheers. And the West Texas Rednecks were supposed to be the bad guys saying that rap is crap. Finally, you have the two concepts. They, they, they're kind of related to kayfabe. It's work and shoot. A work is something that is fake. A work that is something that is fake, that is like within kayfabe, like it's the idea that you're doing something and it's fake, you know, this is a, this is a fake element, you know, it's a fake injury, a work injury. So like if a wrestler all of a sudden 
like is grabbing their knee and like, you know, they're not actually hurt, but they're pretending they are. That's a work. However, sometimes in wrestling, you do have a shoot. Uh, a shoot is basically when something is real. A shoot is real. So like sometimes, I mean, professional wrestling, uh, injuries do happen quite a bit. There are injuries. There are injuries. There are called shoot injuries. So that's the difference. Uh, the difference between a, a work is something in kayfabe. It's being made up. A shoot is something that is real. So independent promotions start coming around in the 1930s, and they kind of get mad at each other for stealing talent. Uh, it became more common once you get into the 30s and 40s to have a small stable of wrestlers and kind of let stories develop over time, hoping to draw bigger crowds. This idea that you're doing more storytelling in the ring. It's more than just the match itself. It's what's going on outside the ring. Now, this was not really televised or anything yet. It's still very much a sideshow, very much like a, a traveling exhibit, kind of a, similar to something like a Buffalo Bill or something like that. And in 1948, uh, many of these territories come together to form what's known as the NWA. Yes, I am clearly aware of the, uh, of the irony, considering we're talking about gangster rap as well. The National Wrestling Alliance. The National Re Wrestling Alliance is pretty much uh, all the territories kind of coming together. Basically, they're going to stop competing with each other. They agree to like share talent, uh, share a promotion, uh, share belts, you know, share championships. And most importantly, they can have like one like entire NWA like universal champion who is going to generate even more interest. So if you look at this NWA map, this National Wrestling Alliance map, you're going to see, for instance, like where we are is like tri-state wrestling. So that's Mid-South. It's like, you know, based mainly in Tulsa, New Orleans. New Orleans was a very big pro wrestling town. Um, you know, Minneapolis American Wrestling Association. You have world-class championship wrestling, WCCW in Dallas. All these different wrestling alliances kind of come together, different territories. Generally, a wrestler worked in one territory at a time. Uh, for instance, I've done some research on what's going on in the Mid-South wrestling. Uh, New Orleans was the big hub, but like, you know, you also have places like Homa and Thibodeau. Yeah, Thibodeau actually was a pretty big draw for a while. Um, they, they knew that different crowds had different um, interests, different tastes. Uh, certain things might play for a certain city that would play for another city. Uh, for instance, this is a weird example, around here, around in, in Mid-South, um, black faces could exist. Uh, sorry, uh, sorry, black faces could not exist for the longest time. I'm sorry, black faces could not exist. Uh, There's a lot more black heel work, but then sometimes whenever people switch territories, their characters change, based upon a lot of different things. It, it, it gets very complicated, I, I should mention. Now, professional wrestling is helped immensely by television. Um, early television is really dependent for, you know, really needs content, and wrestling promoters were happy to provide it. Because of television, <clears throat> uh, characters became way more flamboyant, way more out there. Uh, you know, basically you're playing for a national audience now. The characters become just ridiculously more than they've ever been before. Probably the best example of this early is, if you go over one, you will see Gorgeous George. I love Gorgeous George. That's just a fascinating pro wrestler. Uh, you watch the YouTube clip, it's about his ring entrance. Very much playing with um, aspects of like gender, of, of expectations of what it means to be a, a masculine man in this time period. Uh, he was known for like, you know, wearing these like, you know, violet and orchid color robes and having his blonde hair curled in locks and like being somewhat effeminate, but also theoretically beating you up, being kind of this foppish dandy, if you will. Uh, Gorgeous George was one of the first, like, really big television pro wrestlers. Uh, they still go for kind of the, I don't want to say the freak show factor, but the largest factor. If you go one more, another one from the 50s is Haystacks Calhoun. Uh, Haystacks Calhoun was kind of booked as, like, he's just a very large country boy. Um, very large country boy kind of element to him. Kind of have the physical, I hate to say freak show element of it, but I'm not going to not say freak show element of it. Uh, same thing, another early one, uh, Classy Freddy Blassie and George the Animal Steel. Uh, Classy Freddy Blassie is actually the one on the right in the, uh, in the, uh, the pink shirt. Uh, Classy Freddy Blassie, he's amazing. He's a manager. He doesn't really wrestle. He's kind of the mouthpiece who just talks. Uh, George the Animal Steel was like a, he was like a uh, high school gym teacher. He only did this on the weekends, and he was known for his, like, hairy body. And, like, he was... That was his whole shtick was being like this, like this, this, this goofy animal guy just acted like a monkey person, kind of like a whatever. The Grand Wizard's another one of these like real talkers. 
really popular and just like not only like changing the character of pro wrestlers, but like the the personality. If we go back to what we talked about with with Warren Sussman, the idea of character versus personality. TV brings it up to a million, brings it up a million times higher. You know, something like the Grand Wizard, um, you know, Classy Freddie Blassie, they are not wrestlers, they are talkers. They are managers. They're mouthpieces who cut what's called promos, who just like, you know, talk about how bad the other wrestler is and how they're, you know, how their guy's going to beat them. All this short of stick. Uh, they're very much known as heels. I believe the Grand Wizard's the first one to come up with the phrase pencil neck geek. Uh, just, you know, just kind of insulting people, insulting the fans, and they're getting cheered and loved for it. And the ratings are actually doing pretty well. Now, I bet you're wondering, hold on there, Tully. I remember, I remember when we talked about TV a couple weeks back, and, like, all of early TV was based around New York City. So I bet the guy who had, like, the New York City territory was, like, cleaning up when it came to pro wrestling. And I'd say, you'd be absolutely right. The guy doing that, if you go over one slide, is one Vincent J. McMahon. Uh, Vincent J. McMahon, he's the one on the left. He was the one running the New York Territory. Uh, he ran New York starting, uh, he ran New York pretty much well into the 60s, well into the 60s. Um, you know, he, WW, WWF, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, that was the big one when it comes to TV. Uh, he brings in, if you look at there, the guy in the middle, that is Bruno San Martino. He is the first ethnic wrestler who wasn't really a gimmick. Uh, Bruno San Martino was an Italian man. He was an Italian immigrant. Um, very known for like, his kind of sheer Italianness, but it wasn't done for laughs. It was basically like, he's a strong Italian dude. He is champion for forever. We're talking like well over a decade. He is the you know, top guy in the WWF. Now, Vince McMahon, uh, Vincent McMahon, I should say, he's very old school as a, as a promoter. Uh, he never really appears on stage. Uh, he's never on the TV show. Um, never appears really on screen, period. He's, he's like an old school booker, uh, you know, picking talent, saying who's going to win, who's not going to win, you know, who, running the territory, you know, like, you know, deciding, all right, what cities are we going to? And he books a lot of these early TV deals. So as TV starts growing, a lot of it is based around the New York wrestling scene, and New York becomes seen as, like, the main place to become a pro wrestler. Uh, before that, uh, the territory system, there was a lot of different territories, but once New York really starts getting into TV, that's the big one. Now, by the early 80s, uh, a new wrestler had signed with the WWF, uh, the WWWF, uh, and, and Vincent McMahon doesn't really know what to do with him. Uh, if you see right there, that is Hulk Hogan, uh, Terry Bollea, but Hulk Hogan, he's very young in that picture. That's probably the super younger he is. Likewise, you can see him with classy Freddie Blassie, so that becomes his manager for a while. Uh, Hulk Hogan ultimately left the WWF and did Rocky III, which actually Vincent McMahon did not approve of. Vincent McMahon said basically, you cannot be in Rocky III, I don't really want to do with it, you know, you're, you're kind of be, you know, showing the business. Um... Hulk Hogan leaves. Hulk Hogan leaves, tries to do some work with other promotions. And that's kind of your early pro wrestling. Now we're kind of getting more into a time period because, and I call this one the freaking 80s, uh, Vincent McMahon had a son, Vince McMahon Jr. All right, so Vince Jr., if you go over one side, you'll see Vince Sr. and Vince Jr. And, and Vince Jr. kind of makes his own promotion and ultimately buys the WWF from his dad and remains at the WWF, so two W's, two W's, and actually re-signs Hulk Hogan to be its biggest star. Uh, basically, Vince, Vince McMahon is newer school than his dad. His dad's more old school, you know, don't put me on camera, uh, don't reveal the business, that's a big one. Um, you know, promoters like Vincent McMahon would not reveal that it was fake, that it was all staged, that it was a work. Uh, Vince McMahon's a little bit more willing to expose the business a little bit. Now, Vince McMahon, if you go over one slide, he has helped immensely by his wife. I just love this picture. It's a cafe picture of his wife, Linda. Linda McMahon is a, is a fascinating individual that I would love to do a history of because she is just fascinating. Uh, she is very involved in the business. So in 1983, the McMahons leave the NWA. You know, they, uh, the, the NWA... <clears throat> They, they claim the NWA is stifling. They claim that they, they could do better on their own. You know, we don't need this protection of everybody else. We could make it on their own. And the NWA is actually very hot in this time period. The NWA is very hot in this time period, thanks to its biggest star, who would be uh, 
well, we'll talk about that in a second. That'd be Rick the Nature Boy, uh, Flair, Rick Flair. Uh, the NWA is more Southern and tries to keep it less, keep up kayfabe with its matches. Uh, supposedly it's real. The, the characters are viewed as um, less cartoonish. So McMahon has like a uh, kind of an uphill battle in this time period. He kind of has an uphill battle. I should mention that. Uh, Vince McMahon's biggest star, if you go to more, one more, is Andre the Giant. Andre the Giant. Poor Andre the Giant. Um, Andre the Giant is kind of a holdover from the earliest days of uh, of wrestling. By the time Vince McMahon gets a hold of Andre the Giant, he's older. Uh, Andre the Giant legitimately does have giantism. He's a French guy who's got giantism. He's like almost eight feet tall, several thousand pounds, maybe not that heavy, but at least four or five hundred pounds. Um, he's never able to walk all that great. Um, he, he's mainly done as a spectacle, uh, kind of the, the freak show element of, of like carny life. Uh, that, that's kind of who Hulk, uh, sorry, not who Hulk Hogan has, I'm sorry, but, uh, who Vince McMahon has. Uh, meanwhile, the NWA, if you look at the NWA, you'll see Ric Flair fighting Dusty Rhodes. Uh, it's viewed as more Southern, more realistic. Uh, for instance, uh, Dusty Rhodes, the, the American dream, Dusty Rhodes, the American son of a plumber. This whole stick where it's like, uh, you know, people like, oh, you know, on, on WWF, it's, it's all cartoony. Like, you're going to have cartoony gimmick wrestlers, but on WCW, sorry, on NWA, it's viewed as real. It's viewed as real. Uh, You will see the video of Dusty Rhodes doing his infamous hard, not infamous, but famous, hard times um, promo. Where basically talks about how it's, you know, it's being hard, that sort of thing. And so NWA is really eating uh, the WWF's lunch in this time period. And so Vince McMahon decides, you know what, I need to like really lean in to like cross over, like kind of lean in on the fakeness. So he he pitches something in 1985 called WrestleMania. WrestleMania is kind of pitched as like the Super Bowl of pro wrestling. He mortgages literally everything he has. Going to get kind of crossover, kind of get back to the audience's levels of the 50s. I should also mention by this time period, uh, pro wrestling's really not as big as it was in the 50s. I mean, things like the NWA are, are consistently popular, but it's not as popular as it was in the 50s. So McMahon goes over with, like, glitz over realism. He, he definitely goes over with glitz over realism. Um, you know, for instance, uh, the first WrestleMania, if you go over one slide, it, Liberace's in it. Uh, Sidney Lauper's there. Muhammad Ali is there. Mr. T is in the main match with, with, uh, with Hulk Hogan. Pretty big hit. Pretty big hit. It, was kinda, it wasn't even done in the pay-per-view yet. It was uh, closed caption. T- not closed caption, but closed circuit. Uh, video movie theaters and junk would show it. Uh, the second WrestleMania was kind of a dud. Uh, WrestleMania is a thing didn't really get cemented. If you go one more slide, until basically the match between Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. Uh, Andre the Giant by this time period was like very old. He was very sick. Uh, super, 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 super sick. I should mention. Never the healthiest individual. And so basically he is, you know, he, he's promoted that he was, you know, he was unbeatable, this large giant. Um, his height and weight kept getting exaggerated, so he was like nine feet tall, weighed several thousand pounds. And basically Hulk Hogan fights him. Um, this is unique because prior to this, they were both, they were both kind of uh, touted as, as faces. They're both heroes. It actually gets a lot of mainstream attention. Uh, you'll actually be able to watch the match if you click it on that YouTube link. We're basically, spoiler alert, Hulk Hogan wins after body slamming Andre the Giant. Um, in reality, uh, he actually, supposedly he tore a few ligaments when trying to pick up Andre the Giant, but he did it anyway. And this was, this was printed to a hit. It kind of becomes mainstream attention. And the 80s, like, get really known for a lot of, um, there's, like, there's a lot of promotional materials for wrestling. And McMahon himself is staying behind the scenes, mainly as an announcer, but him being the owner, you know, it wasn't exactly common knowledge, but not hidden knowledge. Um, also, I should mention during the 80s, they really start kind of using wrestling as like a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? A, not even an allegory for what's going on in the world, but basically like letting the USA fight with uh, its, its demons or what have you. Because if you look there, if you go over one more slide, you'll see Classy Freddie Blassie. Again, I love Classy Freddie Blassie. With Nikolai Volkov and the Iron Sheik. Uh, Nikolai Volkov was supposed to be a Russian. He wasn't Russian. He was uh, he was Croatian. He was Croatian. He actually fled to the United States because he didn't really care for uh, the communists. But, you know, he, he gets a job, uh, you know, being the embodiment of the USSR, even though he doesn't like the USSR. Uh, likewise, the Iron Sheik. The Iron Sheik was indeed Iranian. 
he fled after the Iranian Revolution because he, he didn't like the, the new people in charge. But then he becomes like the embodiment of everything in Iran. And pretty much they are classic bad guy uh, heel wrestlers who get beat up by the all-American Hulk Hogan. It's just like this kind of embodiment of Cold War anxieties or the U.S. being, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, under pressure by somebody else. And, and like I said, this happens a lot during the 80s. Um, I talk about this a lot more in my, uh, in my US, modern U.S. history class. But just this idea that, you know, they're using pro wrestling to kind of work out America's anxieties. Um, it, it was very interesting that, like, out of nowhere, they would have, like, if the U.S. gets involved with another country or, like, we're, we have, we're on bad terms with another country around the world, almost immediately a, a heel wrestler from that country would materialize even though they're very rarely from those actual countries. <laughs> uh, that's about to change, though, in the 1990s. Uh, Ric Flair even joins the WWF for a while. It's, it's really not that big of a deal. Um, you know, th- things are pretty big in the 80s. The 90s are really going to get about to get bigger. Thanks, if you go to one slide, to Ted Turner. Ted Turner is an interesting cat, because TV was making Vince McMahon pretty rich, but is making the TV people richer. And one of those people was Ted Turner. Ted Turner, based in Atlanta, um, he had numerous cable channels. I, I, I cannot iterate how many cable channels Ted Turner has. Uh, CNN is probably the flagship, but he's got tons of cable channels. Um, a lot of his cable channels get help from wrestling. Um, a lot of help from wrestling, a lot of consistent, mainly NWA wrestling. And so he's like, hey, these wrestling's pretty popular. Uh, pretty much he wants his own piece of the action. So Ted Turner buys the Atlanta Territory. Remember, the NWA is several different territories. Uh, he buys the Atlanta Territory from Jim Crockett in 1988 and renames it WCW, which uh, is not very big at first. Uh, so, you know, the, you know, WWF is much bigger, but, you know, and the NWA is even still bigger for a little while. However, in 1993, WWF has a steroid problem. Uh, there's a nasty steroid trial where basically um, turns out that a lot of these wrestlers are using steroids, which really hurts Vince McMahon's reputation. Also, uh, in Congress, he admitted that the results were uh, predetermined, which everybody knew, but, you know, saying under oath in Congress is a, is a different thing. Uh, and money issues came shortly thereafter. Uh, basically, um, Vince McMahon was seen as like a bad person for wrestling. Uh, his personal life, kind of, his business life, I should say, came under scrutiny. In 1994, uh, Hulk Hogan leaves for the WCW. And although, uh, you know, WWF had a weekly show in the Monday Night Raw, uh, WCW came out with Nitro. You saw earlier Nitro when Master P was there with uh, the West Texas Rednecks. It starts poaching uh, WWF talent with massive checks. If you go over one slide, you'll see what's known as the Monday Night Wars. Where pretty much WCW and WWF uh, theoretically fought for ratings. This was the Monday Night Wars was a period from about 1995 to 2000 2001, where both promotions pulled out all the stops to get the audiences. At first, it's all WCW. They had the bigger checks. They had a good selection of cruiserweights, which is lighter weight, more acrobatic pro wrestlers, and the ultimate uh, trump card. Trump card, I should say, which was early on. If you go one more slide, you'll see the NWO, uh, the New World Order. Basically, in 1996, they did what Vince McMahon would have never done. They made Hulk Hogan a bad guy. Something never done in the WWF. They made him a heel. Uh, their champion, Bret Hart, was never was a very good technical wrestler, but he was not a very good character, not a very charismatic individual. And that really kind of comes to a head because their, their locker room keeps getting depleted. And then this all kind of changes in one of the most interesting times where kayfabe and real life really overlap, and that's the so-called Montreal Screwjob. Uh, this is something which is weirdly important in modern pro wrestling. So we gotta, we gotta, I gotta explain this one a little bit. This is probably the world spend a little bit more time about. Okay, so Bret Hart, uh, you can see Bret Hart. Well, you can see his butt right there. Bret Hart's butt right there. Um, Bret the Hitman Hart. Uh, he was not happy at WWF. He wanted to leave and join WCW. Now the problem was he was the champion of WWF. And Vince McMahon doesn't really want, you know, him to leave his promotion while being the champion. And so basically there's a match between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, who's another pro wrestler. 
And basically, you know, Bret Hart is like, look, I, you know, I'm going to be leaving. I don't want to lose this match, you know, so I'll just give up the title afterwards and then I will go to the other promotion. Vince McMahon doesn't really want to have that happen. And then the lines start to get really blurred because Vince McMahon promises Bret Hart, okay, you're going to win the match. That is, that is, remember in pro wrestling, all the matches are predetermined, all the outcomes are predetermined. That doesn't happen. Okay, um, what ends up happening is basically Vince McMahon conspires with the referee, who generally doesn't really do anything in a pro wrestling match other than just like make sure the wrestlers don't hurt themselves. Basically, Vince McMahon tells the ref, hey, say that Bret Hart tapped out, even though he didn't tap out. Basically, say that, basically, make Bret Hart lose whenever he wasn't supposed to lose without telling Bret Hart about this. And this is where the lines of kayfabe get very blurred, because apparently afterwards, uh, Bret Hart was legitimately mad at Vince McMahon, uh, punched him in the face, for real, maybe broke his nose, that's where it gets kayfabe well, not kayfabe but we don't know for sure, but he definitely punched Vince McMahon in the face, for realsies, for doing this, and left and never talked back. Now, here's the thing. That could have been all internal, but why this is important, if you go over one slide, this kind of develops a new character for Vince McMahon, a new personality, if you will, where he's taking more of an on-screen role, something he hadn't really done before and his dad never did. This really blurs the lines of reality. He becomes the Mr. McMahon character, this kind of like millionaire, billionaire, asshole boss, uh, for lack of a better term, this kind of character that really blurs the lines of reality. He basically starts admitting, yes, you know, I'm, you know, Brett got screwed. He's like, no, I didn't screw Brett. Brett still screwed Brett. Like this whole thing where it's like he's kind of playing this character, like kind of playing up the fact that it is it is fake, and he's kind of like amping up his own notoriety, all his bad press tied to his own. Of course, he needs somebody to play off of. Uh, Vince McMahon rarely have ever wrestles. He wrestles sometimes, but not that often. And so he now needs people to play off of. And he got two big ones. Uh, the first one was Steve Austin, uh, better known as Stone Cold Steve Austin, who was a uh, WCW cast-off. He really kind of played into this anti-hero persona, uh, for instance, he, he became famous when he's like, you know, you talking about to another wrestler, supposedly religious, you know, you talk to him about your John 316, well, Austin 316 says, I just whooped your ass. Uh, really starts kind of publicly feuding with McMahon, really blurring kayfabe. Uh, McMahon now is now acting like a childish billionaire, pulls his family to positions of power, yells, you're fired, things like this. Very big draw. Then you get The Rock, uh, Dwayne Johnson kind of gets pulled in as well. Uh, comes in as a face, turns heel after the crowd starts booing him because they don't like the way he is. And then he gets people to start loving him as part of the Afrocentric nation of domination. Uh, meanwhile, the WCW had started to get kind of stale from NWO fatigue, it became too stunt heavy. Uh, they had some success with this guy named Goldberg, but then it got like really pathetic when they brought in Master P. And that Master P reeked desperation. And then the WWF started winning back. Winning people back, I should say. And with The Rock and Steve Austin getting viewers, McMahon really started looking into expanding. And he also, okay, he gets viewers by going super crass and not having too much wrestling. I mean, I was alive during this time period, didn't watch too, too much wrestling. I got more into wrestling when I got into college because I had some really good friends who really liked wrestling. Uh, but I remember, like, back in the day, like, you know, also I didn't have a TV, so I really couldn't watch that much stuff. But I remember, like, okay, one of, one of the wrestling shows had a lot of people wrestling, and the other one had a lot of people talking. And I was like, I like the one where actually has more people talking. Sorry, it has more people wrestling than uh, the one had people talking. Uh, WWF generally had more talking. Uh, it was also very crass. It was very crass. Uh, basically, he, he kind of, like, you know, hires a, makes a, a Thursday night show. WCW makes a Thursday night show. They can't keep up. Uh, in 2001, it's kind of interesting. He starts his own football league. Vince Man starts his own football league, the XFL, which is just hilarious because it came back. Uh, basically, this idea that you could use the same mindset for football. Uh, you couldn't, it turns out. And actually, WCW was actually bought out by Vince McMahon, ending kind of the own, kind of ending the Monday Night War, and kind of ending what we want to talk about this time period. So, and in my notes, I have WTF did we learn? Well, <laughs> first of all, both gangster rap and pro wrestling are very much embodiments of their time. They highlight the has the masculinity of their participants, and they both have larger than life performers acting as characters or personalities, if we want to use the Sussman term, who claim to be a quote unquote real. In addition, they both sought as many pop culture avenues as possible. 
And they're also very aided by the very good economy of the 90s. Uh, that is something we haven't talked about too much before because we haven't really talked about 90s pop culture yet. But the 90s are just an amazingly good time for pop culture. Uh, and particularly because of the economy. I should say, the, I mean, it's always a good time for pop culture. But the 90s economy is just amazing. Uh, 90s economy is super strong. That's all really, like, this, this excess. Like, like, the amount of excess you have with both gangster rap music and with pro wrestling. Really dependent upon a very good economy. Uh, the fact that, like, you know, telling off one's boss because you could theoretically get another job, which is what you have a lot of with the uh, Steve Austin character talking to Vince McMahon, that's highly dependent upon this idea that you could get another job. Uh, you wouldn't really have that during the Great Depression or something because... Jobs are hard to come by this type of time period. It's interesting because I think both of these really, both both gangster rap and pro wrestling really show a lot of the concepts we've been looking at throughout the semester. This idea of excess, this idea of the blurring of real and fake. You know, as long as you enjoy it, what's real, what's not real. And if you go over one more slide, I think this is very interesting because you're going to see Vince McMahon with Donald Trump, who Donald Trump did a lot of stuff with WWF over the years. Uh, they changed their name to the WWE because of a lawsuit with the Panda people. But there's a lot to be said that Vince McMahon's character, sorry, his personality, I should say, I know we're at Sussman, uh, the, the, the personality of Vince McMahon, the, the, of the character, of the, per, the personality of the character, of the persona, if you will, of Vince McMahon is very similar to Donald Trump's, um, particularly before he became president. Like, there's a lot of overlap between this idea that, you know, here's this rich billionaire who yells, you're fired. Um, you know, Donald Trump said that on The Apprentice, but it actually first came from Vince McMahon saying it all the time and on the pro wrestling shows. A lot of overlap there. And, and, you know, this is not to be politically critical of anybody because I don't do politics in this class, you know that, but just how this kind of template becomes viewed as a very American thing. I mean, there's plenty of P.T. Barnum in Vince McMahon. There's plenty of Buffalo Bill. But it's that he becomes this character over time. He becomes this personality over time. It's not like, um, you know, this is not like Buffalo Bill who's doing it as a, as a young kid. And I want you to talk about that. Just this, this level of, of kayfabe, if you will. This level of, like, um, an accepted reality, you know, of, of heightened masculinity. All these things we're talking about when we talk about professional wrestling and gangster rap. So for that, this is Dr. Tully for History 302, wishing you a good one, and hey, enjoy some music videos. Later.